We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to turn to this text that Charlie read to you in Mark chapter 2, going into chapter 3. If you can kind of scan the text, uh, you see that in the text we looked at last week, we looked at the Pharisees, and uh, they challenged uh, the disciples about Jesus. And before that, we looked at the Pharisees having a problem with Jesus pronouncing a man forgiven. And here in verse 23 and following, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, and then in chapter 3, uh, in verse 1 through 6, the Pharisees went out. And so if you're doing a, a, a life story, a narrative, a drama, a movie on Jesus, the guys that are playing the part of the Pharisees are about to earn their money. They're about to have to do some acting. The Pharisees are about to take center stage. Uh, what began with a paralytic a couple of weeks ago, how can a man forgive sins? Only God alone can forgive sins. What began with the paralytic is now going to go on to the leper, remember him? And now it's going to the man with a withered hand. And it's going to continue until chapter 3 and verse 6. They sought counsel as to how they might destroy him. You all see that in 3.6? How we can kill him. And so this narrative is going to continue all the way until Calvary. Whenever uh, the spiritual... Pharisees and the political uh, Pilate are going to come together for the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. Now is when the tsunami is beginning in his ministry. And Mark wants us to know that. These are the bad guys. Now the question, you may not know a whole lot about a Pharisee. How does a Pharisee go from being a patriot to an enemy? Because they were. In the intertestamental period, when Israel was in exile, how are you going to keep them from losing their Jewish identity to the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, and these guys? You're going to have to have synagogues begun by Ezra, it's said. And the guys that keep you separate are called the separated ones, that is pronounced Pharisee. They're the guys that preserved your Jewish identity. They were good guys in their beginning. But they have problems. Problems arose. You know, when you go to the end of your Old Testament and you see the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi that are your post-exilic prophets, you'll notice you don't see the word idolatry mentioned anymore. Have you ever noticed that? The problem of idolatry got purged from Israel by the... Uh, by the exile. Can sometimes God let you experience what you're tempted toward to get rid of it in you? I had a, my wife has a sister named Nancy. And uh, they said when she was little, they'd go up camping in Colorado. And she always liked to wander off from the camp when she was a little bitty and go down toward the stream that was flowing because it looked so pretty coming down from the mountain. And they got, Teresa said her mother got tired of fetching Nancy back. And so she picked up Nancy by her little arms and baptized her in the Colorado melting snow. And uh, Nancy never got over about three feet tall. You know, it, it, it shut her down right there. She's like this big. But uh, Teresa said she never wandered back to that stream. Can God do that to you? I'm going to baptize you and what you're tempted. So God let them live in a culture called Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome that worshiped animals. How do you like it now? They didn't like it so good. And so they didn't mess with it ever again. But when you read Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you see that the sin of Israel mutated away from idolatry to a heinous shallow 
earning of the favor of God, not by true holiness, but by, by religious tradition. Basically, what captivated uh, Europe in the Middle Ages, that's what Catholicism became, whitewashed tombs, straining at gnats, swallowing camels, uh, tithing dill, mint, and cumin, but forsaking the weightier issues of the love of God. And so that's what they fell into. And that's what, when you read Malachi, that's the rebuke God gives to Israel. If I am your father, where is my honor? Okay. And so the Pharisees hardened into that. Uh, Self-righteousness was one reason. They felt that they could earn heaven by continual religious rules. When Paul goes and writes the book of Romans, that you're saved by faith alone, on the authority of the Bible alone, not tradition. Uh, you know what Romans is? It's nothing but an Old Testament Bible study. Paul always takes you back to Genesis and the book of Exodus. And so Israel had fallen into an error and uh, they had fallen into pride. They didn't like to be reproved by one that was called the uh, the. I think it's called the Am, the Anharetz was a word in Hebrew that meant the common people of the land, the non-Pharisees, non-Sadducees, the non-scribes, the guys that have no seminary training. They simply called them the Anharetz. And that was what Christ was. He was a Galilean. His disciples were Galileans. He didn't have Pharisees or Sadducees or Sanhedrinists. Uh, matter of fact, Nicodemus had to meet with him at night so nobody would see him. This multitude that knoweth not the law is cursed, they said. And so they just had a problem in pride of being reproved by a layman. And they had envy. They were being surpassed by a commoner. His Bible studies, you had to lower people in through the ceiling. You couldn't get in the front door. They were envious and they were also fearful. They were losing their control. Christ will say to the multitudes of the Pharisees, leave them alone. What they say to you, do it, but do not do as they do for they say these things, but they do not do them. So they're losing their control. They're also very guilty. Luke says they were lovers of money. Jesus reproved continually about the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. Uh, they also, politics got involved. Do you see in chapter three and verse six, the words Herodians? They were Jews that were loyal to the Roman government. And they were concerned that if the Roman government perceives this Jewish clique of the Christians, if they perceive them as gaining too much momentum, they will perceive it as a threat to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and they will shut it down. And if they shut it down, then they will shut us down as a nation. And so all of these things together brought about a challenge of Jesus by these religious professionals. That's why when Martin Luther uh, stumbled into the Protestant Reformation, the guys that wanted to kill him were not the European laymen. It was the European priestly caste that wanted him dead for the same reasons. And so the controversy in chapter 2, verse 23 and following is going to be over the Sabbath. What does keep the Sabbath holy really mean? Jesus said of the Pharisees, you bind great burdens on men, but you will not lift one finger to help them. Jesus said, come unto me, you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter, in, uh, whenever the, it was said that the new converts under Paul needed to be under Jewish law, Peter said, why should we put a yoke on these people that we, their need, we nor our fathers have been able to bear? They can't carry this thing. And so it, it was not simply that there were biblical rules, but there were traditional interpretations that tried to show you how far you could travel. Uh, if you ever go to Israel today and you'll get on a Sabbath elevator, it'll go up and stops at every 
uh, floor so you don't have to work and push the button. That's a fact. And so on a Saturday in Israel, if you got to go up to the 13th floor, check out the elevators. Don't get on the Sabbath elevator because, and also they rig the lights that you don't have to work and turn on the lights. They'll come on and off by themselves. Let me give you a little sermon in a sermon. If you take what the Old Testament law says and push it all together, it comes to material about a 16th of an inch wide. That's all in your Bible. You're to interpret through the interpretive grid of the love of God and the love of your fellow man. But what Israel did and what Catholicism did in the Middle Ages is they took away the human element of interpreting. The church came up with what was called canon law. And Israel came up with the Mishnah, the oral tradition, and it was written down in what is called the Talmud. And it shows you what obedience means. So you took the Bible out of the hands of the Jew and you put it into the hands of the religious professionals. And they would tell you what keeping the Sabbath meant. And they had a list as long as your arm that you had to keep. Jesus never, ever in all of his ministry refers to the Talmud. Did you know that? He'll say things like this. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. And so he'll refute it. And that's what caused all the problems. Uh, if you wanted to put a title over the Gospels, you could call it Back to the Bible. Jesus is back to the Bible. They said to Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, do you recant your teachings? Luther was teaching faith alone, the Bible alone, Christ alone, that every believer was a priest, every one of us could go to the Bible, that there was no, uh, the, the church was to be lived by the common man, not by the priest for the common man. And he was challenged as to recant that. And Luther at the Diet of Worms simply took a Bible and handed it to him, said, show me. I forget how you say it in German. Or something like that. He said, show me and I'll recant. But I'm not going to recant to your traditions. Show me. And that's what Christ said. Show me. And so, are you with me so far? Okay. Well, in verse 23, after all that preparation, let's look at it. A very common act occurs. It happened they were passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples began to make their way along, picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That is a very common act. In the Old Testament, if you go through a guy's field, you're allowed to pick grain. You can't uh, take a scythe and cut it, and you can't bag it up and take it with you. But you can, you're expected to be generous. And so you would pick grain, and then you would rub it and get the husk off, and then you would eat it. Okay, well, that's what they see them doing. Uh, it's not that they're violating the Bible, but they're violating tradition. Tradition said you couldn't do that because whenever you picked the grain, you were now reaping. Whenever you rubbed off the husk, you were now threshing. And whenever you blew off the husk, you were now winnowing. Balona ai. But that's what they said, okay. And so these watchdogs are looking to the disciples for any discrepancy. Little sermon in a sermon. Last week, we saw the Pharisees challenging the, challenging the disciples about what Jesus was doing, eating with the lowly. Now they're challenging Jesus for what the disciples are doing. The Pharisees learned it's not safe to take on this man in an argument. Never argue with a fellow that is called the word of God. Okay. That it's a lot easier to point to the Christians and blame Christ. Has the world learned that? Yeah, they have. That they don't like to criticize Christ, but they love to criticize his people. And so they point to the disciples. Uh, 
They said in verse 24, they're doing what is not lawful. They didn't say, is it lawful? They said they're doing what is not lawful. What they were doing had nothing to do with Jewish law. It had everything to do with rabbinic tradition. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition, tradition. Are you with me? All right. And so, this is not a violation of law. It's a violation of custom. Well, in verse 25, Jesus said to them, have you never, see what the next word is? Circle the word red. He's not going to argue the Mishnah or the Talmud. It's Luther. We're going back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Have you not read? Uh, Christ is going to draw a parallel of a story in the book of Samuel. When David and his companions became hungry, they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and they ate consecrated bread, which is not in, in the tabernacle in the temple. You had 12 loaves of bread that only the priest ate, not the common man, the layman. But he said, they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he gave it to those who were with him. Now there's a parallel between Christ and David. It's sixfold. Watch this. You have two kings, David and Messiah, Christ. You have uh, two men, David's men and Christ's disciples. You have two missions. David was on a mission from God. Christ is on a mission from God. Uh, David and his men were hungry. Christ and his men are hungry. Uh, David acts against law and he eats the bread. Christ didn't act against law, but what they perceived as law. And both of them, the, the solution to it is love. These men, David and his men are on a mission from God. They're servants of God. They can eat. Christ and his people are on a mission of God. They are the people of God and they can eat. The difference is, is that what Christ does is running against rabbinic tradition. What David does is running against, quote unquote, against scripture. David's is more severe than Christ. Well, in verse 26, he ate the consecrated bread and he gave it to those who were with him. The, Jesus points out that the priest's decision was not the letter of the Jewish law. It was the spirit of the Jewish law. Jesus said in John 7, do not judge with external judgment, but judge according to the heart. And so the high priest recognized these are people that are on a mission from God, just like priests, and they are to be cared for. Uh, one theologian said this, that Christ, when you argue with him, will take you from where you're sitting in the judge's bench and seat you in the prisoner's docket. Never argue with the word of God. And so the interpretive element, Jesus said, is in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The interpretive element is the love of God. Uh, little sermon in a sermon. The purpose of the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath is pre-law. It was established at creation. Uh, the purpose of Sabbath is we're not going to go just six days and then return to your work. I want you to stop and I want you to reflect on something. I want you to rest and I want you to reflect that God blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. I want you to reflect on the fact that everything that you eat, that everything that holds you on the planet in gravity that the stars that illumine your way, 
the air of the firmament you breathe, that the body that you have, nature about you, the animal kingdom, everything that you have is under the auspices and the creation of God. Amen? I want you to recognize that because human beings, when left to themselves, will just keep on running like gerbils on the track and they will work and eat and continue and strive and we will forget the invisible spiritual nature of reality. Amen and amen. That's the way we are. And so this was instituted by God in Israel. You are a nation that's going to recover the notion of Calvinism. Let me explain that. Calvinism's major idea is that all of reality is underneath the sovereignty of God. Nothing flies independent. The Milky Way, the molecules that make us up, uh, marriage, mind, spirit, flesh, bodies, animals, plants, everything is under the, the fullness of the Lord, uh, the one who made it. And so Israel was to be a nation of Calvinists long before Calvin. That it was correct theology was restored. As a matter of fact, God said to Israel that the, the Sabbaths were the covenant sign that these were his people. Israel recognized the sovereignty of the one true God. And so that was the purpose of Sabbath. Uh, if you want a good uh, reference for what Sabbath meant, take Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13 and 14. When you get home and read that, it's how God interprets the Sabbath. But what Israel had done in his day is they had failed to see the forest for the trees. It's like one time Mel told me when he was in Colorado, he went out and was cutting the hedges there in Pueblo, but he was doing it on the Sunday and he was wearing shorts. All right. Now Mel's legs can be offensive on a good day. All right. But he was in his like fifties when he did. And so he's cutting, you know, just on a Sunday, been to church where he was a deacon and he's cutting the hedges on Sunday. And all of a sudden the lady, Harriet Olson, are you with me? <laughs> hey, yeah. Just jumps all over him, you know, and just gives him a real good thrashing to the glory of God. You're working on the Sabbath. She had strained at a gnat and she had swallowed a camel. Y'all know what that term means? Whenever in Israel, an insect, a gnat was considered unclean. And so you had to make sure when you got water and you were going to pull it, pour it in your pitcher out of the well, you had to put a cloth on top of the pitcher so you didn't get no contemptible gnat down in your food. And so you would strain at a gnat and then you go out and swallow about a 2,500 pound camel. And that's what Christ said Israel was doing. That's what that woman, Harriet Olson, was doing to Mel. All right. And so in verse... 28, Christ now comes to a theological conclusion that I am about to correct not just what you think about God, faith, salvation, and sin. I'm going to correct what you think about the creator. The son of man, a reference from Daniel chapter 7 as to who Messiah is, a true man. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. John 1, in him all things were created in the heavens and on earth. And apart from him was not anything created that has been created. You dig? That is the ultimate Calvinistic statement. In him all things were created. And apart from him nothing exists that did it apart from him. All is under the sovereignty of God. Christ said, you're looking at him. Colossians chapter one, 
In him, all things were created in heavens and the earth, spread their thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, meaning the angelic realm. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the source and he is the object of the creation, is the worship of Christ. And so in verse 28, earlier in the chapter, he said, who can forgive sins but God alone, that you might know the son of man has authority here on earth to declare a man forgiven, rise, take up your pallet and walk. Not only do I forgive sins, the prerogative of God, but I am the Lord of Sabbath. Everything that exists is under my prerogative and I determine how God is worshiped. Isn't that something? Well, the question now rises, can you prove it? When you said you can forgive sins, you had to prove it. You had to take a paralytic and make him walk simply by your word. Can you do that here? Can you take a guy that can't work, a guy with a withered hand, and can you make him work? Can you do it not by your touch, but simply by your whim? Can you declare it so? What is greater, creation or recreation? It's recreation. Uh, a Rolls Royce is marvelous. A restored 37 Packard is more marvelous because it is recreation. What is more marvelous, Adam or the rebirth of man? It's the rebirth of man. And so he's going to recreate. You know what legend says this guy did for a living? It's a legend that this man with a withered hand, it is said, was a plasterer. We would say a paper hanger. You ever heard the term, you're busier than a one-armed paper hanger? Well, this, if we had to put a marquee out front, we would call it the healing of the one-armed paper hanger. And so let's watch what he does here. In verse 1, he entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. He is like man, that part of him would long to work. Part of him would long to take his dreams and put them to work by working, but he can't because part of him is withered. And that is man. That we all have longings for what is love and justice all you need is love. Da, 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 da. Is anybody with me on that? Uh, what the world needs. Everybody wants love. Everybody wants justice. Everybody wants, you know, the right treatment. How are we doing achieving that? How have we ever done achieving that? Man is the man in the synagogue with a withered hand. He's like Beethoven, they said Beethoven was, that he could think marvelous tunes, but he couldn't play them. You know why? He was deaf. He was deaf. And so his hearing left him. And so they would say for him to make tunes, he had to put his ear down over the piano board there and try to pick up the vibrations. And so that is man, that we have longings, but we can't achieve it. And so, verse 2, they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The question is not, can he? He's shown that he can. He healed the leper. He healed the paralytic. He has shown that he can heal. It's not, can he? It is in verse 2. Will he? It's a setup. They've got a guy positioned and they want to see if on the Sabbath he will heal. Now this is hardness of heart. It doesn't matter that Christ can heal paralytics and lepers. It's not just that he can forgive sin. The major thing to them is not this man's good. It is keeping the tradition and it's there keeping their place of authority and dominion over the Jewish people. 
and sell. Tradition says that a Jew cannot, the tradition said that he cannot work on Sabbath. Even if he is being attacked, he cannot defend himself on the Sabbath. Have y'all ever heard of Masada? Up on the, up on the mountain that the Romans built a ramp over two years and finally got up to him and the Jews, 900 of them, had taken their own lives. The way that the Romans got to them is they would attack on Saturday, on Sabbath, because they knew the Jews would not work, would not defend themselves. So they made hay on Saturday. And so Jesus is not supposed to heal. I want you to notice something about Christ. He wades through tradition. He never flinches. Christ's bread is to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. And he is fearless on tradition. Walks right through it. Well, in verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Y'all make a note. I don't want anybody to forget this. This is called moral courage. When you've got the professionals that have the ability to bring about your death, which they do, they chair the Sanhedrin. And when they are surrounding you and they're watching you and you're all by yourself, it is where you stand up and you say to the fellow, get up and come forward. When all the powers that be are gathered against you, can this in any way relate to our present day? When all the powers that be are against you, when you stand all by yourself and you say, get up and come here. You remember old Thomas Paine that wrote The Sunshine Patriot? And it began with that, whenever now being an American was not just being an American, you were going to have to stand up against oppression. And he began the sunshine patriot with the words, these are the times that try men's souls, meaning we're going to find out what you're made of. We have a term for it in our country that comes from playing poker. Pat, you'll remember that. And it's where you will stand by your hand or whether he's bluffing or whether you've got it. And it's called, you have to play when the chips are down. When now there's money on the line, you got to stand. And so these are the times that try men's souls. Amen. That's where America is right now. Well, Christian America. These are the times where we're going to find out what you got. We're going to find out what you've made of. I'm sure people have prayed over the past years, God, I prayed that the church might be brought into a place where it cost them something where they would have to stand up and you'd purify. I don't know what idiot prayed that, but it came true. And now are the times that try men's souls. We're going to find out what you got. When some kid goes off to college, you better tell him. Now are the times to try men's souls. We're going to find out what you got, son. When you got to stand in a pulpit, now we're going to find out what you got. All right. And so Jesus stands surrounded by opposition, hostile opposition. He's alone. And he has to, this crippled man also, we're going to find out what he's made of. Will you stand up? And will you approach this man that everybody around you wants him dead? Will you come to this man all by yourself that nobody likes him? I have heard so many testimonies of guys and young men and women, or they can be old men and women, that when they were young, they were in a Baptist church. And the pastor said, as they're sitting among all of their cohorts having a burping contest, okay. And the pastor said, uh, like W.A. Criswell would say, I'm going to ask you to come forward. One, somebody, you. 
Remember he'd say that? One, somebody, you, come. And in your coming to say, I want to trust Christ as my Savior. I'm sure this man was kind of hesitant. He said, you know, I've got a bus waiting on me. And Jesus said, if there's a bus waiting on you, it'll wait. Remember, Billy Graham would always say, and so one somebody you. And the guy would give his testimony and say, I wanted so badly to go, but I was sitting among my peers and it was scary. And so I went. Well, that's how this guy feels. And so it's a test of Christ. It's a test of this man. If we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. Believe God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Whoever will not confess me before men, I will not confess him before the Father. Whenever Israel had to put the blood of the Lamb out to show that they were trusting, where did they put the blood? You put it on the, on the door facing of your house, out where everyone could see it. What happens when the Egyptians are mourning the loss of their dead and you've got a cross of blood on you? Is that scary? You're going to have to trust him. I'm sure there were a lot of Jews that wanted to keep the little lamb in the bedroom. Others wanted to get the bowl of blood and put it under the welcome mat that they can have the best of both worlds. God said, you can't do that. We're leaving. There's going to be a book written about this called Exit. We're leaving. So you got to stand. The tabernacle is central in Israel. The temple is central in the nation. And so, as Paul said to Agrippa, these things are not done in a corner. Everybody is to see it. And so you're going to have to put your faith in God publicly to do this. Well, what should happen? In verse, uh, verse 4, hang on here. There we go. In verse 4, Jesus said something to them. He gets ready to come forward. I think he's standing before Christ. And Christ said to them, how does Jesus know that they might have a problem with this? He's omniscient. How did Jesus know that they were reasoning in their hearts? Who can forgive sins but God alone? How does he know they're having a problem? Point, never argue with an omniscient person. Never argue with someone who says he's the creator of the universe. He'll always win. Could I apply that? Is there some guy, some girl here today that got drug in here? They had a drug problem and they got drug in. Okay. And they said, you're going to listen to this. And they are setting their face against heaven. Do humans do that? They set their face against God. You better be careful messing with a guy who made you and knows you and with a whim can take your life or restore your life. That's who he is. And so, and remember, the Romans honored Jupiter as the Greeks honored Zeus. Power, Mars, Jupiter. And they're looking at this. Nobody, this is not some creature up on Olympus. He comes down among us to do this stuff. And so he said to them, is it lawful? He goes right to the heart. Is it lawful? Notice, not is it traditional. Sola Scriptura, Christ goes right to the Bible. Is it lawful not to keep tradition, but to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Do. He says, boys, me and you are about to do a work. It's just question, which work are you doing? Can I do good or can I do evil? Can I save a life or can I kill a life? Question. 
What's that mean? Can I kill? He is saying, for you fellows to have the ability to see this fellow healed and not do it, that is evil. Never argue with the word of God. And so he takes them from the judge's bench to the prosecuted docket. You're now on trial, not me. What are you going to do? And you notice what they did in verse 4? They kept, what's the word? Silent. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. They are silent. You know why? You know what? Because they can't. They're damned if they do. And they're damned if they don't. I either work and see him healed or I work and see him die. And so either way, I have violated, I have affirmed or I have violated the character of God. And so they are silent. You know what Christ could have said to them? Checkmate. Checkmate. That's when you can't move. The game's over. You can't move. Well, in verse 5, and looking around at them. They were all looking at him. He now eyeballs every one of them. And you want to see something odd? He looked with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Anger because they are hardened. They are unfeeling and they are unconscionable toward the character of God. They're hardened. And he is grieved because these are the nation's leaders. You remember the verse goes like this? And looking at the multitude, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep that have no shepherd. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. All we've got are these guys, and they're not seeking after God. Pray that the Lord of harvest will raise up some real leaders among us. And so when you get home, read Isaiah 56 and verse 9 through verse 12, and it shows you what God thought of the rising uh, spiritual leadership. Well, in verse 5, stretch out your hand. Such is the salvation of man. Can a withered man stretch out his hand? No. Can a paralytic walk? No. Can a tax collector get up and go into the mission field in a nanosecond? No, he can't. Salvation is when you have to do what God speaks to you to do that otherwise you cannot do. When I was at seminary, Dr. Lewis Johnson, he used to say, what is it, he's from South Carolina, what is it that a paralytic cannot do? He cannot stretch forth his hand. What is it that a sinner cannot do? He cannot look to a holy God to save him. When God commands men everywhere to repent, do not think that man can do it until God calls him. The Apostle Paul said, be gentle with those in opposition if perhaps God might grant to them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth and they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul said to the Philippians, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. God grants you repentance. And so, I, I mean, I've shared this illustration with you before. When I was in college, I wrote two letters to the men I respected most, saying, I remember I, I had to rewrite the letter because I spelled, I said, I'm a sophomore at North Texas, and I wasn't sure how to spell sophomore. I put S-O-P-H-O-M-I. I said, that don't look right, so I had to rewrite it. Uh, 
That was before you could delete stuff. Okay. Uh, but I wrote it. I'm a sophomore at North Texas and I've been wondering about life. And I sent one to Paul Bear Bryant, coach at Alabama. And I sent one to Billy Graham. And both of them wrote me back. Bear Bryant said, Tommy, I appreciate you're asking me about making it in life decisions, but you're the player of another team. And that's not ethical for one coach to counsel another. See, Alabama was concerned about us knocking them off with a national title. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we finished out of the running that year. So he didn't answer me. And then I got a letter from Billy Graham. You know that? And it said, Tommy, there is a lot of college students today wondering about meaning in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem that they have is that they are alienated from God. Yeah. And the reason is because of sin. And I went and threw it away. I didn't read on. You know why? Because Billy Graham, I don't know what I thought Billy would tell me. Tommy, you need to get your bench press up to 300 or something. He used a word I didn't like. What was the word? Sin. I wanted a genie. I didn't want a God. I wanted a genie. And I threw it away. In other words, what Billy said was stretch out your hand. And I said, no. And it was until God, by his grace, said, stretch out your hand that I did what I couldn't do. So he says, stretch out your hand. Incidentally, is this paralytic looking familiar to you? He looks like you, withered. Half of you wants, but the rest of you can't. You can't go outside of yourself to fix it. Uh, you gotta make a decision whether you're gonna stand and trust him. This one that is gathering hatred and you have to reach out to him. He's there. Stretch out your hand. Trust him. Well, in verse five, he stretched it out. His hand was restored. Did y'all all say that? There's your gospel message. Stretch it out. He did. He was healed. So it is with salvation that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now, what should happen you should see the entire place explode in joy that a man can recreate and validate what he said he was, the Lord of creation, the Lord of Sabbath. But instead, what you see is verse six. The Pharisees went out, church is over. They immediately began conspiring uh, Literally, it says they gave counsel with the Herodians. You've got religion and politics coming together about this common enemy. It's the Tower of Babel, once again, of men united against God. Can there ever be in a country a collusion between religion and politics? Yeah, false religion and false politics. The, the Herodians don't like him because he's claiming an authority higher than Herod and Caesar. The Pharisees don't like him because he's looking for an authority higher than tradition. And so they began counseling with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Point. You ready? Grace will do one of two things to you. It will either melt you and trust or grace will harden you in hatred. The first words ever spoken about Jesus were by Simeon in the temple. He said to Mary, who had an eight-day-old child in her arms, this child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel, and he will be a sign to be opposed. He's going to be a representation of God. He'll be a sign that men oppose. And he said, and someday a sword, Mary, will pierce your soul. You're going to watch this boy die. And he's going to be for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. 
Some people are going to love him and ascend to glory. Some are going to hate the mention of his name, and they are going to fall into the lake of fire. So that's what grace can do. There could be two people that got drug in here this morning. Some people are listening and saying, that is the most intelligent human being that has ever lived. And the parents are saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's the Bible. Okay. He's just the most handsome that I've ever seen. Well, that's true. And then there are some that are saying, I wish he would shut up and die. That's what grace does. You either love him or you hate him. Well, what's the lesson here? The lesson is he forgives sin. He is God alone. And he is also the Lord of Sabbath. And we've got to make a decision on him. You know what one theologian said? After you read the story of Christ, there's only three ways you can go. You can say he's mad. You can say he's bad. Or you can say you're glad. Mad, bad, or glad. Which do you want? There's no fourth option. When I say mad, I mean this. If this man said he can forgive sin and he is the creator and he that has seen me has seen God. If a man says he is God, there's only three responses. He is not God, but he thinks he is. He is mad. He is crazy. C.S. Lewis said he is a lunatic on the level of a man who said he was a poached egg. He's nuts. Or... He says he is God, and he knows he's not. In which case, he is not a good man. He is a bad man. Who said they were God and was not? Satan, uh, David Koresh, um, wait a minute, uh, Charles Manson. There's another, what was his name? Jim Jones and Jesus. So don't call him a good man and don't call him you know, a wonderful fellow. He's, he's crazy or he is demonic or he is who he said he is. Be glad we have a savior. Mad, bad, or glad. Which one do you want? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for what Mark wrote to a bunch of Romans saying to them, you guys have got to make a decision on Jesus. What are you going to do with him? And Father, I pray that you might find us with the moral courage to stretch out our hand, those who have been healed. And like those disciples, they had to stand with Christ on this. Whenever they saw the guys coming together and glancing sideways at Jesus, they were glancing sideways at them. And I'm sure that that uh, healed uh, man with a withered hand was standing right there with him. He found out that he had new life, but he found out that he had new death. He had brand new enemies. And so it is with us. And we say, bring it on. We fear not those that can kill the body. We fear him who casts body and soul into hell. And we'll pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.